Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a leader in oncology research with four new FDA-approved medicines in the last four years. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, or CTCL, with Dr. Michael Girardi. Dr. Girardi is professor and vice chair of dermatology at Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. I think that uh, probably most of our listeners have never heard of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, which I guess we sometimes abbreviate CTCL. But I have to say that I've been personally interested in it a little bit, uh, since I heard first heard about it in medical school where they used to call it mycosis fungoides, which I think translates to fungating fungus. Is that right? And that is the literal translation. And there is confusion around yeah. the terminology for sure, even among medical professionals. Cutaneous T-cell lymphoma is kind of the umbrella catch-all term mm -hmm. that's used for all of the different subtypes of lymphoma that can go to the skin that's derived from a white blood cell a lymphocyte called T-cells. Yeah, but don't, don't lymphomas cause swollen glands and things like that? We think of lymphomas as being masses of in lymph nodes, I They thought. do. They do indeed. So lymphomas um, are any cancer of lymphocytes that okay. can arise in any tissues. Very commonly, they will arise in lymph nodes. Or even if they arise in another tissue, like the skin, they can involve the lymph nodes. And of course, if they involve the blood, then we can have a leukemic manifestation of the lymphoma. And in CTCL, we often see all three go together, the skin involved, the blood involved, and lymph nodes involved. So technically, it's a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that starts, manifests in the skin, um, but can also involve the lymph nodes and the blood. Well, why would a lymphoma arise in the skin? Why should there even be these lymphocyte cells uh, there in the first place? Steve. Lymphocytes are everywhere in the body and in the skin in particular. In fact, a study was done to calculate the number of lymphocytes in the skin, white blood cells in the skin, and there were more in the skin than in the circulation in the blood. Huh. So if we think about the skin, what's the function of the skin? So a major function is to defend the rest of the, the body against any external insults, including infectious agents. And so we certainly want our immune system, for which lymphocytes are the primary surveyors of, to protect us and to be there as part of a defense mechanism. And so lymphocytes populate the skin, but they also home to the skin quite regularly and efficiently mm. to help defend us. Now, now in this particular kind of cancer, uh, the lymphocytes uh, are of the T-cell variety, right? What, what does that mean exactly? So there's two major types of lymphocytes. There are T-cells and B-cells, and, and they kind of work in coordinated ways, hand-in-hand. B-cells largely are responsible for making antibodies. Like that, if you get a tetanus shot. Yeah, so you'll manifest a, a, a production of specific antibodies that can attack um, bacteria, for example, in the external space. T 
T-cells have evolved more to protect us against viruses hmm. and, and also to protect us against some cancers as they can develop. So um, they're both important components. Hmm. T-cells in particular will home to the skin more regularly than B-cells, but B-cells can also. Do we, not, do we know why that is? So I think it's primarily the function. B cells can release antibodies out of certain factories like in lymph nodes and in the spleen, and that can get in the circulation, and those can permeate everywhere, including mm. the skin. Whereas T cells, we need their cellular function. We need the full cells uh, to carry out their function for defense purposes. So they got to be the sentries on guard at the location. Is that right? Yes. That's a very important component of their function. Gotcha. So do we have any idea why these T cells in the skin go bad? So I get asked that one a lot. And so I can tell you that we've studied the genetics of CTCL and, and have seen a, a huge variety of genetic alterations, mutations, or and also gene copy numbers that change, additions to certain genes and deletions of certain genes, and it's a huge spectrum. And so that doesn't really tell us why that's happening. But we know that T cells, like other cells in the body where there's a lot of increased risk of cancer over a person's lifetime, are a highly proliferative type of cell. They, that they is, grow a lot. Yeah, they need to make a lot of themselves, in particular against response against infections. Mm -hmm. And so when you have that capacity as a cell, errors can happen. Errors can happen and mutations, changes in the DNA that guide the cell cycle, how cells turn over, how they proliferate, how they make more of themselves, can go awry. And if they harbor these mutations, if they stick, if they stay with the population of cells, just like in any other cancer, then the growth becomes uncontrolled. And so it so happens if this happens to a skin T cell, then the growth becomes uncontrolled in the skin. Mm. And so patients will wear their lymphoma. They'll have lymphoma right there on their skin. And you would think that may make it easy to diagnose, both for the patient and the doctor, but it's often very confusing because it can manifest so many different patterns and because there can be so many different subtypes. Now, I remember uh, that uh, I was taught during my fellowship that this uh, particular lymphoma often went undiagnosed for often many years. People were told they had psoriasis or pseudopsoriasis or other more common and benign skin disorders. Is that still happening? That is very much still a common phenomenon. And it's, it's understandable in, in, a, in a lot of ways because, again, the patterns that are seen on the skin don't always follow the textbooks. Mm -hmm. So there's some classic presentations for cutaneous T-cell lymphoma and the subtype you refer to as mycosis fungoides, where we have these patches or flat, round to oval, pink to red lesions that like to present in sun-protected areas. Hmm. So that would sometimes be called the bathing trunk areas. So on the buttocks, on the inner thighs, on the breasts, under the arms. Again, these are sun-protected areas, which give you a clue to why we use ultraviolet light to often treat these early stages of CTCL. That is, they're very sensitive to certain wavelengths of ultraviolet light, and so we use that as a treatment, but it also is a clue to diagnosis. It presents in this area, these areas. It tends to get lighter in the summers on patients, and in the winter seems to be more pronounced. But even when, even when doctors and patients might think about whether they might have this, sometimes it looks like psoriasis. Sometimes it looks like eczema. 
Sometimes it looks like ringworm, like a fungal infection of the skin. It can take on different morphologies, mm. not just necessarily the classic round and oval. It become more ring-shaped. It can become um, even more polygonal sometimes, and that can be very confusing to patients, to doctors. Then there's another element of delay in diagnosis, and that other element is this isn't like a histologic um, diagnosis of melanoma might be. That histologic is, meaning how it looks in the microscope. Yes, yes. So if a doctor performs a biopsy. Skin say, biopsy. Skin biopsy. And so it takes a piece of skin, say three millimeters, sends it to the pathologist and says, hey, what is going on here? Mm -hmm. It's not always a black and white reading when it comes to CTCL. It's not a slam dunk. No, no. There's often um, a lot of dependence on the experience of the pathologist in seeing a lot of cases of CTCL. It is a relatively rarer form of lymphoma. About 4% of uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphomas are, are of the CTCL um, type. But in the skin, the affected cells, the abnormal T cells that might be present can be few and far between. They are often a minority of the T cells that are in the skin on the biopsy. Hmm. And so knowing exactly what to look for, looking for changes in the nuclei, the shape of the center of the cell, looking for where they are, how they line up, and how they interact with other cells become a very important component for an experienced pathologist to make that diagnosis. So sometimes we get back from the pathologist, well, suggestive of hmm. CTCL or consistent with CTCL, and these are kind of the gray areas of the di diagnosis. So we need to turn to often some more high-tech, state-of-the-art molecular studies to help us with the diagnosis. Wow. Well, before we get to some of that cool stuff, um, I'd just like to see if we can clarify, because I know we've got a lot of listeners with psoriasis and a lot of listeners with eczema, right? But this, this is not a common problem compared to those, right? I mean, most people who have psoriasis and eczema that's really what they got, right? Absolutely, Steve. Um, psoriasis and, and atopic dermatitis or eczema are much more common than CTCL. And so we don't want to insinuate that people who are walking around with, with common uh, skin conditions um, have CTCL, really. However... Uh-oh. Yeah. Well, so, however, if a patient develops eczema in their 50s and didn't have it as a child... CTCL likes to come on as we get older. It's really um, a condition that can occur at any age. Mm -hmm. However, it's much more common in patients in their 50s and 60s. And if they didn't have a history of eczema or they didn't have a history of psoriasis, and it's atypical for those. That a is atypical, yeah, not say, typical. Not typical. So say it's occurring in a distribution that's not consistent where, where psoriasis typically occurs, which, which is on extensor surfaces, elbows, knees. And the doctors, the dermatologists know about that. They do, yeah, and yeah. they should pick up on that. And it's coming on later in life without a history of such in the younger years. That, that should get their attention. That should. That should be a clue to, hey, maybe I need to do a biopsy and see if this is something that might be a little different than what I thought it was in the first place. Another clue is a lack of response to treatments. Mm. So someone who has a later onset or has a, um, what they think is eczema or what the doctor thinks is eczema, but it's not responding well to treatments. Mm. 
then this might be a nudge to see a specialist, see a dermatologist, get a biopsy, get get a full expert clinical opinion mm. as well as a full pathologic histologic uh, vantage on what's going on. Right, because I figure if I had psoriasis nowadays and it wasn't responding, there's some stuff on the uh, commercials that they're pushing, some high-tech stuff that's curing all these people's psoriasis or making them go out in public again. I don't know if you ever saw that commercial. I, there's plenty right? of those, yes. Yeah, so, right, so yeah. I would just think, oh, give me one of those expensive high-tech things. Yes, right, and so that and that may ultimately help a patient with a, an unresponsive. I'm just saying psoriasis. that's what I would think is you know this is how it's pr- being promoted to us as consumers. Sure, but right? part and parcel with that is being sure of the diagnosis in the first place. Absolutely, and and of course, as as uh, patients, we should never be making our own diagnoses or our own treatment recommendations without no. the help of a real expert. Absolutely, absolutely not. However, it's important for patients to feel empowered to ask. Why am I not getting better? Is it normal for me to still have a terrible plaque? Right. Why have I not seen a dermatologist about this condition or or, an, or perhaps another dermatologist for another opinion? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So the other thing I wanted to clear up before we get into some of the more sophisticated diagnostic things is, you know, dermatologists are always telling us, you know, to stay out of the sun and use the number 30 sunscreen and all that stuff. And it's sounding like you're telling me that unless you're sunbathing in the Caribbean or the south of France, I'm putting myself at risk for T-cell lymphoma if I don't, you know, if I don't do some sunbathing. That's, so no, no, that's not the right take-home message, that's right? Not, that is not. No, Steve. So it is... It it is critically important for patients, for people, to protect themselves from sun exposure and the harmful effects of UV rays that come with that, in particular because the risk of skin cancer, and when I say skin cancer, I mean melanoma, squamous cell carcinoma, basal cell carcinoma, is very real. And, in and they're fact, much more common than this Much thing, more right? common, and uh, they, in particular, like to affect people as they get older, people with fairer skin, people who have had a lot of outdoor exposure or sun lamp exposure through indoor tanning, major risk factors for that. That is not the same as when we say we use medicinal ultraviolet light to protect against uh, CTCL. It doesn't prevent CTCL. It's used to treat. It's done in a very measured way, stepwise way. In, a, in an office, we have a treatment center here. There are treatment centers across the country. We use a specific wavelength of light. In one case, we use a very narrow band of ultraviolet B light, mm-hmm. and this can really be used effectively and safely does not increase the risk of skin cancer to a substantial uh, level over your natural exposure and uh, and can really be a tremendously effective first-line treatment, skin-directed treatment for uh, a lot of forms of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. All right. Well, this is a a very fascinating uh, subject, and I think one that most of our uh, listening audience uh, probably has never heard about. Um, But right now, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about head and neck cancers. 
Although the percentage of oral and head and neck cancer patients in the United States is only about 5% of all diagnosed cancers, there are challenging side effects associated with these types of cancer and their treatment. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers, and in many cases, less radical surgeries are able to preserve nerves, arteries, and muscles in the neck, enabling patients to move, speak, breathe, and eat normally after surgery. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Michael Girardi, who is professor of dermatology and vice chair of dermatology at the Yale School of Medicine. We've been talking about a very rare form of lymphoma, which presents in the skin, known as cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. So, Mike, uh, before I uh, started getting you off topic uh, intentionally, uh, you had mentioned that oftentimes um, it's it's a little difficult to make a diagnosis on the way the cells look in skin biopsies for this particular set of disorders, and you need to do some genetic testing or things like that. What, what can you tell us about that? So um, what we know about T cells is normally they will rearrange some of their genes, and we've evolved to have this process happen because it gives diversity to our immune system. Well, that is so complicated. I don't really understand. Tell me, tell me a, a little easier yeah. terminology. So there, so there are surface proteins. Okay. There are proteins on, on the cells, on T cells, that can recognize a great variety of infectious agents. So they're like the radar looking for their target, right? Yep, and they can zoom in, and there's different specificities. Okay. Um, that are attributed to different T cells. Okay. And so we can take advantage of this diversity of T cells mm -hmm. by looking at the genes that have shuffled to make these receptors. And so in CTCL, as in any cancer, there's a clonal expansion. There's a, a single cell that gives rise to the other cancer cells. So every cell is related to every cell. They're all basically That's identical right. copies. Yes. And so we can look at the genetics mm -hmm. in specific to the receptors, these T cell receptors. The radar protein. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we can zoom in and say, has there been a clonal expansion of these T cells? So are they all carbon copies of each other? Basically? That's right. Okay. That's right, Steve. And then, so that molecular level of testing can be very sensitive. Um, and can give us a tremendous clue beyond just the pathology as to whether we might be looking at CTCL. But, but you told me you've only got a three millimeter piece of tissue. How can you get, like, how can you do these DNA tests on such a small amount of tissue? So there's a, a, a special molecular test um, and, and process where we can amplify the genes so we mm. can make more copies of them and then we can um, um, do the sequencing analysis. So we'll actually have the, uh, the machines go in and, and, and one by one look at each of the, of the coded bases to, uh, to identify that sequence in the DNA. Hmm. That's fascinating. So, uh, and before we go on, I also uh, would just like to reach out and and for the patients who have an underlying diagnosis, well, I guess you said that if, if they're not responding well to treatment, uh, these are the people who should be more worried about whether there's something else going on, right? Yeah, so we talked about some of the clues mm -hmm. um, to, to presentation. Um, and, and really what we were talking about, we were talking about early stages of mycosis fungoides, uh, where we have these patches, these flat areas of right. involvement, or these, but sometimes we see these plaques. 
Plaques. Yeah. So plaques is um, as a, a patch is a flat lesion. A plaque is a thickened lesion mm. of skin. It has rays to it. Mm. You can run your finger over it and you see that it's above the level of the surface of the skin. Kind of bumps up. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, this is a, a more concerning form. Hmm of CTCL and mycosis fungoides and that subtype, um, we can also see an evolution to actual tumors on the skin. Those are the mushrooms, right? Yeah. So this is what led uh, uh, Alibert in France in the 1800s to, to coin the term mycosis fungoides with these um, fungating mushroom-like tumors that can occur in the skin. And this is what we're trying to prevent yeah. when we treat these lesions early. So early diagnosis, early treatment, decrease the number of abnormal cells in the skin that have a chance to go on and give rise to other subclones that might behave differently. But wait a minute, Mike. I mean, let's say I've got this early stage, you know, mycosis fungoides presentation, uh, in one or two places on my skin, you tell me you want to put me under some ultraviolet lights and that's going to help prevent progression, and that's fine. I, I'm, I'm cool with that, but you're telling me this is cancer, right? Don't I, I want to cure this thing. I don't want to like have to worry about you know, not curing it and just having some, you know, ultraviolet light to shrink sure. the lesion. Sure. So I'm you, not happy with that. I understand. And, and patients often express that sentiment also. But this, there, there's a dichotomy here with CTCL. Early disease tends to be extremely slow growing. We have plenty of time to treat it with safe um, easy treatments, including ultraviolet light, but not limited. We have other topical creams, ointments um, that can also uh, be used. And we can use a very superficial form of uh, electron beam therapy that our therapeutic radiologists can employ uh, in the care of patients and, and really eliminate lesions. But ultimately, cure for early disease is not something we talk about. It's overkill. The toxicity level that we would need to, to take on as a risk to try to cure patients of this in early disease is just too great. It's too great a risk, and the chance of curing early disease that way is, is incredibly small. Hmm. Well, when you say that this thing is incredibly slow growing, yeah. you know, that might be easy for you to say, but what does yeah. that mean like five months? Does that mean two years? So, does that mean a decade? Yeah, we're talking about um, um, years to decades. Um, it, when it presents in its earliest stages. Mm -hmm. However, not everyone presents with the earliest stages. Some of them tend to present um, with more aggressive disease. Without having had that right. pre precursor stage. De novo. Or, up from know, the front. Yeah. Up from the, yeah. Just like that. Huh? Yeah. And so um, you know, we have to uh, respect the fact that this is indeed cancer. Hmm. It is cancer of white blood cells, but it, early disease can be managed more conservatively. And then later disease... That is, if we start to get thick plaques, more widespread lesions, or if we actually get tumors, if we get blood involvement, if we get frank lymph node involvement, then we need to bring out the armamentarium. And we have a um, really a tremendous now in the last 10 years um, advancement in the treatment of these more aggressive uh, forms of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, that is later stage disease, but also more aggressive subtypes. Hmm. And what, what do those treatments look like? So um, for patients with, um, with extensive skin involvement, um, for patients with lymph node involvement, um, we really will um, turn to more systemic administered treatments, that is intravenous 
or oral pills. Chemotherapy, really. Um, so chemotherapy is something that we really try to stay away from. Okay. Even with more advanced disease with, with CTCL, there, there tends to not be as much of a durable response mm. uh, with this condition. But we're seeing a lot more of uh, uh, responses to, uh, to certain categories of agents. Okay. Um, one major category is uh, called retinoid, and it works on receptors that are inside the cell, not on the surface. So that's like the stuff that teenagers put on their skin for acne, right? So Ret- it is, Retin-A it, or it something is, like that? It's related to or, that. Very good. Or Steve. Accutane. Yeah, yeah, but not the same thing. Okay, but, but similar, not, right? A derivative, so years of research that have evolved to help with treatment of CTCL along that uh, particular class of agents, yes. Another one that um, is, is really uh, um, exciting is a class of agents that are monoclonal antibodies. Okay. So they get... Um, um, infused into the uh, circulation, and they target certain um, proteins that are on the surface of these cells. Okay. And there are several that have been identified specific to CTCL, and a lot of times these uh, monoclonal antibodies are attached to certain toxins okay. that can kill the CTCL. So a seek and destroy approach to uh, to finding the cells wherever they may be in the body, not just in the skin. Hmm. Um, Another treatment that we do um, is called photophoresis, and this is very commonly used for patients with blood involvement or who have leukemic uh, type of CTCL, often goes under the name of Cesare syndrome, again, for another French doctor who named it way back when. Not Hungarian, huh? No. no it sounds, oh, that sounds like Cesare a Hungarian, Hungarian name. Looks like you, a Hungarian name to me. You, you, Cesare or something like okay. that. I don't know. Um, there's an excellent goût on the E, so I don't oh, know. Oh, oh. I'll have to look that up. But, you know, Ooh, la, la, I don't those, know. Those countries are next to each other. <laughs> no, not exactly. All right. Back to Cesare. <laughs> Cesare syndrome usually presents more with what we call erythroderma, and that's fancy for red skin. And so red skin patients who have CTCL are much more likely to have blood involvement with their CTCL. You mean like their whole body is red? Yeah, so uh, the definition formally is of 80% or more, but I've seen patients with 30, 40, 50% red okay. involvement in their skin have blood involvement. And we're not talking about that's their normal complexion, right? They're not right, really no. pink people in the first place. No, these no. aren't ruddy, fair-skinned individuals who have a little bit of redness to This is some, a change for them. No, the, so the triad that we talk about with um, with Cesare syndrome is red skin, okay. intense red skin, usually itchy, um, flaking, um, and then lymph node swelling. Uh-oh, okay. Yep, and so now we know that this is going to the lymph nodes too. Mm-hmm. And then leukemic involvement. And so blood tests where we can profile all of the T cells becomes a standard part of the way we work up patients with CTCL because we want to keep tabs on whether their blood's involved because the treatment dynamics change. We want to get into the blood with other treatments and g- attack those cells. So one of the ways that we do that is with photophoresis. Right, what's that? So photophoresis is uh, a, a treatment that was um, originally developed by Dr. Richard Edelson, who's chair at, uh, of dermatology at Yale, um, that's uh, at numerous centers across the country and the world now, um, about um, 200 centers in this country alone. And it's a treatment on the blood where some of the patient, a portion of the patient's blood is temporarily taken out and processed by a machine to separate the white blood cells from the red blood cells. Okay. Then the white blood cells are treated 
uh, in a way with a uh, naturally found chemical called sorolin uh, in combination with, again, ultraviolet light, in this case, ultraviolet A light. Okay. And so this combination of the sorolin and the ultraviolet A light has a profound effect on cancerous T cells. It allows them to undergo a uh, slow death. This has a fancy name for it called apoptosis, but this slow death is in particular good to empower the immune system when these cells are infused back into the body to attack not just the slowly dying cancer cells, but to ignite an immune response against the living malignant T cells. That's amazing because I've always wondered, it doesn't seem to me like even remotely imaginable that you can be taken out enough T cells in that machine to treat them all. I mean, you just told me there's gazillion T cells around, right? Yeah, so you're not taking them all out. No. You're taking this portion. And in this portion, a patient may have 10 or 20% of their peripheral blood circulation, circulating T cells actually be malignant CTCL cells. And so, yes, you may damage some of your normal T cells in this process, but the key part of it is the clonal that has expanded is damaged in a way that you can ignite an immune response against those malignant cells. It's almost like a vaccination against the cancer. Dr. Michael Girardi is professor and vice chair of dermatology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.